The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This is the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queen's College in the City University of New York. I'm Charlie Gomez, also from Queen's College City University of New York. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, J.P. Pardoguera from the University of California, San Diego. J.P. is the author of Automating Finance, a 2019 book with Cambridge University Press. But today we're going to talk about British academia and the incentive systems that govern faculty production and their effects on science. J.P. Pardoguera, British Science, coming up next. Right now we are ready. Hello, gentlemen. We are here first. Uh, my colleague Charlie Gomez. Charlie, nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Thanks for having me. And JP Pardo Garrett from UC San Diego. JP, I'm a big fan of yours. I love following you on social media. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We had JP in for the Queen's College uh, faculty workshop a couple weeks ago. You can We actually had an experiment on YouTube Live, and you can catch JP talking about his uh, work on automating finance. And at the end of the presentation, he just whipped out like this whole other project that was fascinating right before we had to leave. And so I, I was pleading with him, please come back on again. And I really appreciate you giving me uh, a little bit of extra time, JP. No, this is awesome. It's the it's the project that I'm really invested in right now, and it's wonderfully autobiographical. So um, it's <laughs> particularly interesting, at least for me. Wait, start. Give us a little bit of the autobiography. So, how does this fit in? So, the project really started when uh, I was at LSE. So, before moving to UC San Diego, I was a an assistant professor at the London School of Economics, and I lived through one of these assessments that the UK government conducts every five years or so of yeah. the academic quality of different departments across the the United Kingdom. And uh, it was a really interesting process because. Part of it was making sense of what was quality as a department within the discipline. And there was a particular meeting that was fascinating because it was essentially a room full of sociologists who knew about the rankings literature and who were nonetheless creating a ranking that they knew would then impress them into the future. And it was fascinating seeing how people were building their own cages yeah. based on what they thought the discipline should be. And that sort of inspired a lot of the projects that I've, I've been working on in the last couple of years. Nice. Okay, so set the stage for us. First off, how are British universities evaluated? And how does that affect the evaluation of academic job performance? Okay, so the story starts in the 1980s. Every, everything in Britain starts with Maggie Thatcher. That's sort yeah. of where <laughs> modern Britain sort of starts. And one of the things that Thatcher's government implemented was this system for assessing the quality of universities. The problem was that uh, funding for the higher education sector was very scarce, 
it was a problem for elite universities and for centers that were conducting high quality research because they were seeing their funding diluted by lower quality departments and lower quality institutions. So they set up this system that would link central funds for research to the quality of research performed in the last Kincanyan sort of. And okay. the, this evaluation started in a very light touch manner. It was initially basically one submission from every department in every university in the United Kingdom. So about a hundred different institutions, every unit of assessment as they call them, or every discipline would submit one or two pieces to be evaluated. And then it's grown over time into this monster that requires a couple of years of preparation, hiring staff to prepare the portfolios, lots of meetings of faculty, lots of meetings of management, strategizing, buying in people. It's a mess. Just to clarify, so when it was first evaluated, people were worried about any type of research of any value being uh, put out. They wanted to make sure everybody was doing something yeah, and not just teaching, you know, nine hours a week and, and sipping pina coladas or whatever. So you're saying in the early phases, what they said to universities is send us your best papers. Yeah. Okay. And then there was like a panel, I guess, that would review them. And if the best paper department could come up with was, I don't know, like the dog park paper or whatever like that. <laughs> exactly. So be it. No. Okay. And then you're saying, and over time, it's become a bigger and bigger deal as departments sort of bring more arms to the arms race yeah. and standards go up. And now everybody's working to just finesse this major assessment to defend their budget. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So uh, about £1 billion per year are allocated through this system. It's not actually... Oh. A lot, if you think of it in the context of the expenditure for the entire sector, but it's enough to make it a really important game. It's also mm. important because it's associated to the prestige of institutions. Mm. So if you have a very good standing in this, then you're more likely also to attract better students and scholars in the future. So it's something that institutions are very invested in. But initially, it started out, as you say, it was submit the best you have, one or two books, a couple of articles for the entire department, and those would be read by a panel, evaluated, scored, uh, and then a grade point average would be generated out of that. Right. And now it's evolved to a system where every single full-time equivalent um, member of staff in the department has to submit four pieces that wow. represent his or her personal best, et cetera, et cetera. So now it's a much more complicated monster. And what is funny is that it sort of started like that meeting at the LSE. So it was all self-inflicted because after this first evaluation that was very light touch, one of the complaints that some people in academia had was that they were not included. Mm. They felt left out. And for the second one, they demanded that everyone was part of the submission. And after that, they just opened the floodgates to this highly bureaucratic, complex uh, evaluation system. <laughs> that is what the UK has nowadays. So JP, 
I'm curious, how did this system stick? Because you could imagine Thatcherism is a particular form of, of a conservative Tory government. You had labor governments. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of changing in hands. Uh, the UK is highly, much more centralized than the United States. Almost all universities are publicly funded where something like this could be achieved. But you could imagine that um, different schemes could be brought up and, and, and sort of developed. What sort of made this stick? Was it sort of like global competition? Was it issues of quality? Um, what, like, what was sort of the thing that kind of that that continued this sort of framework on and and actually made it grow? Yeah. So one of the things I think animated and continues to animate the persistence of this this regime is that academics are suckers for prestige, and that's, uh, yeah. that's basically <laughs> the, what are you talking about. The, the <laughs> it's like the fundamental mechanism of the reproduction of these things. So it's. It's a system that speaks to this vocational call that we have about creating wonderful, interesting things, and also about the the sort of cultures of prestige that are so central to academia. So even though people hate it, and they hate being evaluated by the system, and they hate the amount of time that they have to invest in these very bureaucratic uh, processes... They also recognize them as important because it's a way in which you distinguish quality and you reward quality and you reward the quote-unquote best in the field and the best departments and the best individuals, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that we like to fall for this idea of it's meritocracy and um, if you publish in, a, in an amazing journal, an amazing piece, you should be sort of recognize the accolades should yeah. uh, come to your door. So that, I think that that's what really animates it. And it came across in a couple of interviews. So I've been talking with folks in the UK, and some of them are very explicit about this, that it's horrible, but it's a way of putting a price and putting value on research. Yeah, first of all, it's like, I'll say in sociology, it's completely elitist people writing in the genre of meritocracy studies, right? Like, like. If you meet them individually, they're like, oh, yes, I absolutely yeah. love this institution that distinguishes me personally. It's more like a theme that you write about. I write about inequality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so I'm not clear. How are departments rated today? Like what goes into the rating today? So the way the the rating and the evaluation happens or the mechanics of this whole process have been described like the most intense grading period you have of student papers. So basically, they have a panel of about 12 to 15 folks that are senior within each of these fields. They receive all the submissions and they have to meet at some point to discuss their grades. So they get these massive piles of books, articles that they have to go through. They divide them up within the panels. Uh, they have to read everything and decide where it scores between from one star to four stars. Four stars represents internationally leading, groundbreaking research. One star is, eh. Yeah. It's like, that was a good try. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In theory, the, the journals, for example, don't really matter. In theory, in some disciplines like sociology, politics, anthropology, the quality of the work in and of itself is what is actually evaluated. So that means oh. people should read the papers. But as it's been described, it's essentially like going through 
5,000 student papers the right. night before you have to submit grades. So you go and you check and it's like, yeah, it sort of makes sense. The abstract is nice. The introduction is okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good publisher. So it's Chicago. That must be good. So I'm going to read a little bit of the introduction and the conclusions and say it's a three or a four. So right. it's very much like that. Yeah. It's A-level for academics. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's four papers per person? Four outputs per person so it can be four papers it can be three papers and a book they have to be distinct so they can't overlap if they overlap then the the panel discusses that and there's a little bit of penalty uh you cannot submit the same people in different institutions which has been an issue before you also can't submit or if you submit the same paper across different institutions because there's uh, co-authors, then mm. you have to specify what you did in the paper. Interesting. Yeah. And how does the ultimate decisions affect departmental life on like a day-to-day -day level? Like, does it influence people's ability to get lines? Does it influence faculty pay, teaching loads? Like, how does it influence people? So there's a, there's some really interesting research that it, that came out from the last evaluation. So for the last evaluation, there's this group of economists at Nottingham that did a study of salaries. So they had access to to very fine-grained salary data, which is not available if you're not a UK-based researcher, and they showed that for example, stars get a salary bump after the ref whereas the average academic receives comparatively uh, no bump in their salaries. Huh. So what happens is that if you have a very strong portfolio, you can negotiate with your chair or with your head of department and with the institution for a better salary because you can say that you're going to walk away with all right. your publications. So it does create a tension within institutions about who is submitting the pieces that carry, in a sense, the, the portfolio of that institution, that carry right. the grade. Uh, and that creates a lot of tensions between folks who are doing what is seen as three- or four-star research, so world-leading research, and those that are doing research that has less, quote-unquote, impact or visibility in the field. So I can actually see this hurting academic fields and hurting innovation. So you could imagine there's a substantial gatekeeping effect that's going on here, right? And there's sort of lots of different ways that this panel is sort of gatekeeping, right? And sort of, I would imagine they're being selected from very elite departments, right? So there's a very sort of, you know, kind of a very clear worldview of what economic, sociology, anthropology, physics ought to look like, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you could imagine that in some ways, uh, people who are, let's say, more interdisciplinary, um, like I'm thinking of myself, right? I do a lot of computational social science, which is not sort of in the tradition, uh, sort of the traditional core of at least American sociology. Um, some of my work would likely be penalized because uh, I would imagine that if I'm sending this to someone who is, you know, 20 or 30 years my senior, this work is going to seem like utter rubbish, right? I'm, I'm yeah. trying to invoke some Britishisms as I'm kind yeah. of evaluating, right? <laughs> um, is that sort of like this, I'm guessing this is sort of either a concern or a trend that you're seeing with, with your work right now. So absolutely, that's, that's precisely the, the core of the project. How are these systems, how are these evaluations transforming the contents of knowledge itself in a sense of the British social sciences? And what I've seen is that, at least in interviews, for example, 
interdisciplinarity is very problematic because at the end of the day, you are evaluated by a panel of peers in the discipline who are thinking about the standards of the discipline. So if you're doing interdisciplinary work, you have to twist it so that it's, it's something that speaks to the discipline in some distinct way. It's also something that affects folks internally. So a lot of the politics of these evaluations happen because of how they're implemented by different institutions. And in some places, they don't really matter. Staff Mm. is very protected from these evaluations, but in other places, they're used as ways of determining the worth of faculty in a sense. And in those cases, if you have something, if you're, say, a sociologist working in a sociology department, but you publish in anthropology, I've heard in interviews conversations that are really tense about whether that's something that should be submitted, that is valuable, that has any relevance for the discipline because it's published in an anthropology journal. And I'm assuming this who gets protected isn't at random, right? I would imagine that certain types of universities, their members of faculty are much more protected than than others. Yeah, completely. So, so there's this fascinating dynamic with the hierarchies within institutions and between institutions. Oh. So there's like this double hierarchy playing out. So if you're a sort of top-rated institution in the field, you're generally very protected. That's also because there's a lot of sort of endogamous hiring in a sense. So that the way that they hire people is is such that they're already playing this game of excellence. So there's not a lot of controversy in those very top institutions. Right. But if you're in if you're in a middle institution or like a an institution halfway through the ranking that has an entrepreneurial dean, for example, that wants to have better results in the rankings, then you're under great pressure then you feel mm. that much more than than elsewhere. And the same hap- happens with departments that are low-rated in their fields at very top institutions. Oh. Because hmm. they're like the ugly ducklings. Right. And, uh, and they should be better because everyone is better. They have to be best in a sense. So... What's your impression of how it changes the substance of knowledge produced, this system? Do you you feel it produces a qualitatively different type of social science than what we have in America? So that's that's one of the the interesting questions that that has been difficult to to evaluate. I think that there is a convergence with the U.S. that's particularly clear in economics. So all these wonderful, amazing histories and sociologies of economics have been very clear at showing at least the creation of a more transnational profession Mm -hmm. that is much more homogeneous across uh, national boundaries. But that is not necessarily the case for sociology, and it's not necessarily the case for politics, which still has Mm -hmm. a lot of connections with sort of continental traditions that make it less close to the U.S. in, in some respect. So I've been running all these models uh, Mm -hmm. that use uh, topic models and word embeddings and all these fancy, fun, computational things. Uh And what you do see is that the structure of departments becomes more similar over time and that the, the way people are writing is also becoming much more similar. So whereas class had 
a couple of different traditions or discussions about class in British sociology had various traditions in the 1980s. Today, it's much more uniform. And you see things dropping out of the of the radar, like Goldthorpe and the oh. rise of Bordeusianism. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, oh. <laughs> you can sort of see some convergences and some changes that may or may not have to do with these, these assessments, but that at least in interviews uh. seem to have some connection to, to these assessments. Did you get some sense that part of that convergence is that people are taking advantage of the cognitive economy of a a person who's reviewing a thousand papers and they just try to adopt all of the signposts of a recognizably good paper? There's some of that. The Uh, other thing, I mean, I think that the, the key... The key mechanism really is publications, and that that's what's changed dramatically over time. So in the 1980s, if you were an economist at a British university, you could publish books, and that was completely fine. Hmm. And books were were okay submissions. They were seen as part of this more gentlemanly way of being an economist. But today, if you don't have your journal of finance or econometrica or something like that, you're pretty much a sort of lag like a a problem for the department you're not necessarily contributing to what the department wants to do in the evaluation so the fact that journals have become much more prominent in determining the worth of scholars Hmm. because that's what gets evaluated makes them greater gatekeepers of the discipline and also makes them sources for more homogeneity in the long run because Mm. Everyone is fighting for the same journals, the same genres, the same right. styles of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. JP, I want to hear uh, sort of – I actually want to get into more of the topic models and word embeddings because I know a lot of uh, the listeners here have heard of these things. Um, some grad students use them. Some grad students uh, use them to sort of peacock to show, oh, I'm doing something really cool. Um, and they are really cool, but it's, you know, I, I think having a good research question behind them is sort of you know, is what, this whole, what makes really good research like, like the stuff that you're doing um, all the worthwhile. Um, but I'm also kind of curious because a lot of the stuff that I'm really interested in is sort of the globalization of science. So mm-hmm. there is sort of this undercurrent, right, uh, within the U.S., the U.K., but many other universities that have a much more international and I not necessarily mean sort of, you know, continental Europe, but more of a, I guess, transnational sort of student body. Right. So you could mm-hmm. imagine there is sort of this cross pollination occurring um, within U.K. universities. So that is to say that there is sort of this metric framework, but there is also this other current where there are other people coming in from different sort of national forms of sociology. Have you looked at that to see if it is actually also the case that, you know, there's this sort of this framework that may be driving this, but, you know, it could also be the case that UK universities are no longer UK universities. They're global universities and much like um, many other universities are now. Yeah. So there, that's definitely part of the story. Uh, it's, it's really an issue trying to tease that out yeah. uh, in the data. So that's that's part of the problem that I'm having right now, which is where the interviews come in. That's where the computational data sort of doesn't give me more information because of the quality of the data that I have, but also because of maybe lack of imagination. I don't know. So uh, <laughs> part of what is what is behind this is definitely an internationalization of the higher education sector in in the UK, but it's also made more complicated because the thing is people around the world are used to these types of rankings. So the thing is they have 
similar exercises in Singapore, in Australia, in Latin America. Mm. So this is a very common way of thinking about and managing scholars. And one of the problems is that maybe it's just this international focus on certain types of products, on certain types of competition in the scholarly world, on certain expectations of what a scholar should be doing that are also behind these patterns of convergence. I really like how you're kind of sort of in a complementary way using both qualitative methods and sort of text analysis, right? Because I think there is this assumption, um, especially in sort of this new emerging area of computational social science, you know, whatever that really is, um, is that, you know, with, with sort of enough data, and with enough computing prowess, you can pretty much solve everything, right? It is very much the hammer to the nail. And I think yeah. that's really important to keep in mind that, um, in especially in in social life, that you need that context, right? That um, that we, uh, you know, especially since we're kind of, it sounds like from your work, kind of more steeped in sort of looking for a mechanism, more of the analytic tradition. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't not use interviews. In fact, you need both. And I think what you're this setup here is actually a really great exemplar for for grad students uh, or junior scholars who are listening to kind of see how you can use these really sophisticated methods, but do so by situating them in with other methods that actually provide a much more nuanced picture, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, one of the things that is really fun is discussing some of the findings with the interviewees, because the thing is, when you go with them and you show the graphs about convergence, then you can have a conversation about the discipline during the interview, which, which makes computational social science findings also a, a mechanism for producing novel conversations that wouldn't have been had in qualitative research. So, Absolutely. so I'm all for using that. And, and the thing is, if computational social science by itself were enough, we would be living in a really boring world because we would essentially be a world where Laplace's demon or demon uh, <laughs> operates. And with 45 data points, we can predict everything into the future. Fortunately, it's not the case. We can't. Mm. I mean, right now, it would be awesome to know what happens in early November. That would be terrific. But, <laughs> but we don't. We can't know that. So, so that's where... I think that combining computational social science with qualitative methods, be they interviews, ethnography, whatever, makes them even more interesting and more powerful. It's exactly why computer scientists have not put us out of business and will likely not put us out of business. And if you want to see a contrast, read some uh, computer science papers that uh, try to do, and I'm using air quotes, your social science and see sort of the the, the, the disasters. I'm sure you know, you're really active oh, yeah. on Twitter, JP. So I think you've sort of uh, <laughs> highlighted a few of these. I'm not going to name mention here, but um, no, I think that like having that sociological imagination as sort of um, elementary as it sounds, is actually one of the most important uh, ingredients. Uh, JP, I actually think it might be interesting to take a step back and maybe you can kind of, for people who don't know what topic modeling is or word embedding, maybe you can give us like a high level overview of, of what it is and sort of how you're using it in, in your study. So one of the things that I wanted to know from the get-go is whether the the topics, whether the types of themes that people were investigating in the United Kingdom had changed over time. And as a way of classifying texts, um, topic models were a great mechanism or a great instrument for doing that. Because what I could do is take every single abstract that had been produced in the United Kingdom over the last 40 years, feed them into the topic models, and then see the evolution of the different types of, 
of conversations, uh, emphases, et cetera, et cetera, that people had over this period of time. And it was also something useful because it allowed me to compare departments. So neat, yeah. What was useful from topic models is that it 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 permitted me to sort of say, look at this department in 1980 and this other one, let's say Cambridge and Oxford. Let's see how close they are topic-wise over time mm -hmm. and then compare that to other things like mobility of researchers and funding and results in the in the evaluations, et cetera, et cetera. So they were also not only descriptively good, but they were also analytically interesting because they gave me a metric for comparison in this very complicated universe of, of scholars that were producing many, many different things from anthropology of emotions and animals to <laughs> sort of operations research in economics. So, so it was, it was a way of comparing things that was very useful. And that's a, a use of topic models that I, I really sort of like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, because like topic models are garbage in, garbage out. So you still have to go back, right? So the topic model takes some kind of large set of documents, uh, corpus, and takes the the engrams that has sort of like what's called a bag of words assumption and cluster these words together um, to form topics, hence topic model, right? But in, either you still have to tune the model. Um, and obviously that can get very sticky. There are tons of models that are out there for people to use right off the shelf in Python and R that could take an afternoon to learn at least the basics of right um, yes. but you still need to sort of validate it right and that's sort of the interesting thing that i think i heard what you were doing with your interviews was to say hey does this make sense right is this model producing the topic model producing things that like resonate with you right and that, that's such an important validation right yeah so so we were doing that with the interviews and we were also sort of trying to use the topic models as a way of describing changes in the fields and then asking interviewees to reflect on those changes. And in some cases, they were shocked. They were like, ah, I had never thought that anthropology, for example, uh, was different today than what it was in the 1970s. But it actually hmm. makes sense because now there's no more sort of open confrontation between the <laughs> Melanesians and the et cetera, et cetera. So I think that... Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. It was <laughs> there's finally peace in anthropology. Finally, yes. <laughs> and the world can sleep easy. But if we were to adopt this system in the United States, what would be the pluses and minuses? So a, a sort of system like this. I, so I, the thing is, with the U.S., I believe that there is sort of a system like this, but it's it's worse in the sense that it's just tacit and taken for granted yes. and it's not under the control of anyone. So at least in the UK, you can blame the government and say <laughs> it's their fault and they right. can change the rules of the game. But it, the problem is that in the US, it's all based on an economy of prestige that is impossible to change because there's no central coordination which mirrors sort of u.s higher education right because um and like a lot of historians like david Labory kind of explained this like uh the u.s system is sort of this haphazard quilt work of of different systems of public private uh, for-profit that just happened because of circumstance and being in the right place in the right time happened to propel itself to be sort of the the global leaders right it wasn't necessarily etched in stone that you know, the Harvard, the Stanford's, the 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 Princeton's, Northwestern's were going to be the best universities in the world. Um, it was sort of like this nice confluence of, of effort. And as such, a lot of the, uh, this work is very, very tacit. It's very localized. 
um, and it's highly it's decentralized, right? And I think that's sort of yeah. uh, it's it's driven by market forces, right? Um, intellectual market forces, I guess, in some way, and it, and I guess in some ways it, it's sort of a you know a patchwork that works in some aspects, but in many other aspects it you know very much does not. But you know, I guess like with everything else in the US, like there's no there's I, I it would be really hard to imagine a system like the UK or even other countries too that are doing this, like China, for instance, um, where they I think they recently just ended their pay for pay for play kind of setup, um, actually working out here in the US. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Do you think that research ratings in general uh, steer the fate of departments as organizations that much? Or do you think that they're more critical to early career mobility? And that's why people mm. pay attention to them? Like, is it that really a, a different performance on these star ratings would actually change the functioning of a budget or who or a functioning of a department, who it could hire, uh, you know, how many students it could serve what it does as a unit? Is it a really big deal? Because I got a sense that it wasn't. On the other hand, the ability for a young person to say, yeah, I can up your star rating. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a star producer would be helpful to them personally in terms of finding their way into tenure. Like, uh, who's it important to these rating systems? So I think they are particularly important to early career scholars. So they have to be very mindful of the evaluation in how they sort of strategize their research and their publication plans. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to the tenure process in the U.S. in that respect, though in, in this case, what you're trying to do is hit a portfolio that will be of benefit for the department. Now, this does have effects on departments as a whole. So it, it does also have effects on senior scholars. So there is more mobility of of senior scholars, perhaps because of the incentives that are built into the REF. There's mm. also weird like quirks that have uh, financial implications for departments. So one of the things that happens with REF or that happened in the past is that you could include scholars that were working at 20% in the submission. Mm. So then you had all these departments in the UK hiring uh, American, Canadian, European scholars on a 20% contract Um. that were essentially just sort of giving them the name for a couple of years so that they can include a few publications in their portfolio. I mean, they hired a ringer. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. For all the listeners, if you're interested in a side gig, send your CVs to British institutions and you can get a good 20% of the of the salary of a senior scholar for doing essentially nothing. And and of course this has implications because the things thing is British academia is like any other public sector academic setting, very cash strapped. So you have millions and millions of pounds going into these exercises, going into hiring folks that are not really contributing to the intellectual sort of community in the department and just creating more anxiety for everyone across the board. So, of course, this doesn't happen in all institutions. Some institutions are really ethical, in a sense, in how they approach this. They don't hire out these superstars. I won't name names because that (laughs) would... That would be bad, but uh, you can Google it up. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think I'd be curious to see what what sort of final direction you want to take with with the paper. Sort of like what sort of the denouement of what what you've done so far. So a lot of this really started with a concern on markets. So I started I started thinking about these evaluations as markets and. The way I've approached them is sort of as these market-like devices that change and affect our worlds. And the question is, do we have no control over markets? Do markets just simply necessarily transform our lives in ways that we can't alter? And what I found in this study is that actually, no, there's ways in which you can do research evaluations that, again, are very ethical, that are mindful of scholars that generate a very tight community and departments that involve solidarity and involve senior staff protecting younger staff, standing in front of the administration and saying no, that involve creating the types of environments that I think we all want in this field. And that's really where I'm trying to go with this. I mean, it's not the evaluation. It's not the market, which is bad. What is bad is how institutions deal with the existence of the market. And that is ultimately the problem. And that's ultimately where we can think about solutions based on forms of solidarity that that might go against some of our vocational calls, but that are nonetheless necessary for the survival of the soul of our fields. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to Charlie Gomez from Queens College for co-hosting today. And a very special thank you to J.P. Pardoguero from the University of California, San Diego. J.P. is the author of Automating Finance with Cambridge University Press. And now he's working on this look at the structural conditions of British intellectual production. We're on the web at theannexpodcast.com, on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter at Sociannex. The Annex is a Queen's Podcast Lab production. Our producer is Hanmei Cho. On behalf of Charlie Gomez, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for calling. Listener.